1: The UK is pressing full steam ahead with its plans to end all coronavirus restrictions on July the 19th. But as scientists and politicians agree, now is as good time as any. There is no such thing as an ideal
0: date. All the possible dates have downsides. And as the Prime Minister has said, if we go at this point in time, we go at a point when there are still some people being vaccinated.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at an especially chaotic week in 10 Downing Street as the government decided to press ahead with easing lockdown, as you heard at the top there from Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty. How has the government got itself into such a tangle on masks? Health editor Sarah Neville and Chief Political Commentator Robert Shrimsley will discuss. And later, we'll be trying to figure out what exactly is levelling up. Boris Johnson gave what was billed as a major speech on the topic in Coventry this week, yet failed to set out any clear new policies of how to tackle regional inequality. Peter Foster, our public policy editor, and Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard will attempt to unravel. But first, Robert and Sarah, welcome back. Hi, Seb. Thanks, Seb. Now, obviously, we'll come on to masks in a moment, but it's something that I've written about in the FT this week, and it's certainly a thing of personal responsibility here. Come Monday next week, where will you not and will continue to wear masks, Robert?
3: I, um, I think I will definitely continue to wear a mask on public transport. I feel that one very strongly. And I will probably wear a mask in anything that feels like a confined indoor space. So if it's busy, uh, if I'm in a lift or in a small shop, And also anywhere that wants me to, because in the end, I think this is about consideration for others. So if people are uncomfortable, want me to wear a mask, I'll wear one. And Sarah, I believe you've been out and about
1: on a reporting trip today. Uh, Is that the kind of thing where you'd be wearing a mask?
2: Yes, I actually went on a number of underground trains today for the first time since March last year. I expect regular podcast listeners have grasped by now that I've been rather cautious since the pandemic began. So this was quite a big deal for me to get back on a tube. And I was actually very reassured because almost everybody was still masked and I I actually felt um, quite safe. And I broadly agree with Robert, I, I think I'll go on wearing masks, well, certainly on public transport Um, and uh, probably in any sort of enclosed situation.
3: I have to say, Sarah, I need to start travelling on your train. Mine's (laughs) always very unmasked.
1: Yeah, and I think I will be the third person to add my voice to that as well, and not least because we have to on trains, but I think in shops as well, that's the kind of place I'll still be masked up. But let's move on to the main topic of the week. Coronavirus cases in the UK have now reached 50,000 a day, yet Boris Johnson and the devolved governments in Scotland and Wales are still pressing ahead with their plans to end all final coronavirus restrictions. With death rates a fraction of what they were in the previous waves, the leaders of the UK believe that this is a calculated risk to go ahead. But controversy and confusion has brewed over face masks and working from home, giving a general sense that the Johnson government doesn't really want to go ahead with July the 19th, but feels as if it can't stop it at this rate. Sajid Javid, the Health Secretary, told the House of Commons that people should continue to act as before, despite the changes in laws. It's so important that people act with caution and with personal responsibility. For example, everyone should return to work gradually if they are currently working from home. They should try to meet people outside where that's possible. And it's expected and recommended that people should wear face coverings unless they're exempt. So, Sarah, let's begin with the general easing plan. We knew this was coming. It was trailed and we talked about it in the pod last week. But we heard from all the government's scientific and medical advisers on Monday There seemed to be a particular note of caution from Chris Whitty there about this concern about the NHS being overwhelmed, that the government has four tests for easing and all of them have been met except that one. What have we seen in the figures in terms of hospital? Because it does look as if admissions are rising quite quickly, but at what level do we have to get worried?
2: Well, uh, one of the sort of fascinating things is that nobody whether the medical and scientific advisers or the politicians have ever actually committed themselves to a figure percentage you know shall we say of bed occupancy that would actually trigger a concern so serious that they might even have to think about taking a step back but certainly this week we have seen hospitalizations continue to rise quite sharply. They've now breached the 500 admissions a day mark for the first time in many months, which was one of those sort of psychologically, you know, rather bleak and alarming moments, you know, when you think how as recently as April and May, we were seeing incredibly low admission rates. So I think the the trajectory certainly is alarming. And we're seeing perhaps a very slight moderation in the sort of vertiginousness, as it were, that um, infections are rising. We, they most certainly are still rising, but perhaps at a very slightly reduced rate. Uh, so that, you know, given the hospitalizations obviously follow infections, usually a couple of weeks or so later, that could point to the possibility that hospitalizations also will start to reduce. But At the moment, I think there is still huge uncertainty about the direction this is going to go in. Now,
1: Robert, do you think this is a mistake or not? Because that's been the view of people outside the government and in the scientific community that's saying that we shouldn't be doing this. That, And fact, that when cases are rising so rapidly, ending all face masks, ending all
3: social distancing, um, is just a very mad thing to do. Well, I certainly think that the absolutism of this is is a mistake. And I think there's something very doctrinaire and you know political about the decision that says we're going to remove all these restrictions, including, for example, the requirement to wear face masks on public transport, a position which is not supported by the public, not even to They absolutely want these restrictions to continue. And it feels as if Boris Johnson wants to be able to say, look, I gave you all back your freedom. And no, it was just Sadiq Khan who took it away from you or some other metro mayor. So, I mean, I think it's a very strange decision and one which actually is not going to boost public confidence. And it could actually even act as a break on the economy as people start to say, well, these cases are everywhere now. Maybe I should be a bit more careful. So it could have the opposite effect to the one it wants. And although it would obviously be very tough for certain segments of industry, it's very hard to see why you think nightclubs are okay right now to, to, to reopen given the high percentage of unvaccinated or only partially vaccinated young people who are the most likely to go there so it does feel like a mistake in that sense I, and broadly i recognize the argument that says sooner or later you have to reopen and that the vaccination process has removed the risk or massively reduced the risk of those most likely to die and at some point you have to accept people will get ill but as long as they recover that's all that matters So I do buy into that argument to an extent, but I think the absolutism they've brought to it may well come back to bite them. I was very struck in the Commons a week or so ago when Keir Starmer referred to the Delta variant um, as the Johnson variant, saying it was his decision not to close the borders to India in time that led to this new spike. And I think the political risk for the Conservatives is is that if things do start to get meaningfully worse people will be, able to, will be able to look at this government and say, "This actually, this one's on you. You've had the evidence and you ignored it. Well, one person who agrees with you, Robert,
1: is Jonathan Ashworth, who's Labour's Shadow Health Secretary. In response to Sajid Javid,
3: this is what he told
1: the House of Commons.
3: The Secretary of State has taken a high-risk, indeed fatalistic approach, trying to gain what might happen in the winter, deciding that infections are going up anyway, and instead of caution... He's pushing his foot down on the accelerator while throwing the
1: seat belts off. Well, Sarah- On this particular thing about masks, this has probably been the biggest controversy this week because when you listen to Sajid Javid and Boris Johnson, they talk about government by diktat, which is very much their view that you've got the Tories that want to get away from this idea of the government telling you exactly what to do on everything. One of the things they've done is to make face masks optional. Yet then across the country, they're being made compulsory by Transport for London, by Andy Burnham on buses in Manchester, by Andy Street on public transport, in the West Midlands. In Scotland, they're going to be mandatory. In Wales, they're going to be mandatory. Do you think the government's going to U-turn on this? Or do you think it's just a fact that they know where the mood of their party is, which is very anti-mask, and also they've gone so far down this road, it's a bit late for them to change their minds?
2: As Robert says, the, the key thing which perhaps Boris Johnson and his colleagues have only recently begun to grasp is that the majority of the public wants to go on wearing masks. They actually feel far safer doing it. So it feels as if Boris Johnson and his colleagues were steeped in the culture of a certain wing of their own party, which, as you say, Seb, is just desperate to throw off the yoke of you know the nanny state, if you like. But that this really does actually jar not only with how so many other Britons think, but also the speed with which infections have been rising. So, you know, somehow the government has just sort of missed the the mood on this one.
1: I do think that's the case. And I think, you know... It will be very interesting, Robert, to see come Monday what people do and don't wear masks. But you have got visions of people going on East Coast trains or West Coast trains where they're not making masks mandatory and people won't wear them. And even when they are being mandatory on, say, Transport for London, you can imagine some people saying, well, it's not law anymore, so I'm not going to do it. And then you can imagine there being lots of scuffles over that. And it's going to be a very interesting test of this Tory philosophy that it's much better to put it in the hands of individuals rather than the hands of governments.
3: That's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's certainly visible. I'm I'm travelling on the tube quite often and have been for the last week. Each week, it's become increasingly clear to me that fewer people are wearing masks and fewer people are wearing them properly. And I think once we get to Monday, people are the people who don't like masks and who really just feel strong about this are going to start saying, look, the law's on my side. I don't have to do so. And I think it's a bit like speed limits in a way. You know, you have a speed limit of 70 miles an hour on the motorway. We all know that lots and lots of people break that speed limit, but it actually also acts as a guideline, because they break it by less than they would if there was no speed limit at all. And I think the same is roughly true with mask wearing. There are always going to be people who don't want to obey the rules and don't want to obey the law and think they can ignore it. But... When it ceases to be the law, that number of people will go up because they feel they have cover to do so.
1: Now, Sarah, let's try and put this in an optimistic mode for one moment. So let's say that we are approaching the peak of this. There is some signs as we're recording this that actually cases, the rate of case growth is starting to drop off a little bit. Is it essentially that we reach the peak of this exit wave in terms of infections about the first, second week of August, which is also the point when the NHS pinging app will no longer happen if you're double vaccinated? And then obviously it starts to come down and by September when schools go back and offices start to go back, we're past the worst of the third wave and hopefully past the worst of the pandemic. Is that right? And do you think that's possible based on the data and what we're hearing?
2: I do think it's possible, absolutely, and I think the thinking particularly of people like Chris Witty, is that we need to get this exit wave done before the NHS starts suffering all its normal sort of winter travails. As you know, the sort of the the annual winter crisis for the NHS, you know, comes by with the sort of, you know, regularity of sort of Christmas Day itself. So the thought of having to cope with both still high COVID cases and probably a very bad flu season because we didn't have one at all last year and respiratory infections in children At one and the same time, I think is, you know, could be truly catastrophic. So I do understand the reasoning, absolutely. And I think it could happen. I suppose the counter argument is, perhaps we could have afforded to have given it another few weeks. But anyway, the government has taken the decision it has. I think it's striking, though, how the language of irreversibility seems to me to have been sort of significantly diluted. Boris Johnson was asked at the Press conference on Monday, you know, would he would he sort of stand by that idea that this has to be the final shrugging off of restrictions? And he was notably more downbeat about that. And when you look at what's happened in the Netherlands, for example. There's a really alarming precedent there, which is they opened up the nightclubs about three weeks ago and the infections, I think they were at one stage, doubling every couple of days. The situation became so alarming that they've had to reimpose restrictions there.
1: Well, and on that, finally, Robert, um, just to cast beyond COVID for a moment, it's been a rather bumpy political week for Boris Johnson, because obviously this is not the freedom day that he wanted. And this very tempered language is not the prime minister's natural instinct at all. And you could see it in the way he was delivering the press conference that he's really just was that this is not what he wants to be doing at this juncture in the pandemic. But then also the government's found itself on the back foot with the issue about racism and the Black Lives Matter movement with several prominent members of the England football team criticising Pretty Patel and the government for stoking the fires of the backlash that we've seen with this dreadful racist abuse towards the players. It feels as well about to go into the summer recess. Boris Johnson is in a little bit of a precarious place at the moment.
3: We could all have lost a lot of money calling the peak of Boris Johnson. Yeah, he's a man who's consistently confounded us. But uh, it does feel to me like we might be at the place where it's hard to see how things get any better for him than they were, you know, April, May when he was riding the, the vaccine wave and people were praising him and he seemed untouchable again in his party. You know, I'm not suggesting he's about to get some massive precipitous decline, but I think we're seeing again the Boris Johnson that we saw around this time last year where people are asking questions, they're not as sure, they're seeing fallibility again. The normal concerns that Conservative MPs have about the directions being taken on you know, lots and lots of ordinary things like planning or housing or neglecting stuff are coming back to the fore. And a lot of Tory MPs I spoke to, I mean, I think I mentioned this in the podcast last week, they're saying, Who thought it was a clever idea to get into an argument with the England team ahead of a major national tournament in which the team was likely to do at least quite well? That was never going to end well for the Conservative Party and for the Conservative leadership. And, I mean, when you look at Priti Patel, when she, the Home Secretary, when she was asked you know, about people jeering, let alone saying that taking the knee was gesture politics, when she was asked about whether it was OK for people to jeer the England team, she goes, oh, well, it's a matter for them. And you have to say, what kind of political awareness does this show you that you couldn't say, well, I don't think we should be jeering our boys, whatever I think about taking the knee. So I think there's been a sort of degree of witlessness which Conservative MPs have noted and started to say, well, you know, we, we, we need to worry a little bit more again. And I think you know, they, they watched Boris Johnson getting quite a hard time from Keir Starmer at question time this week. And so you just see the beginning of those old doubts emerging. I'm not suggesting he's about to go into a precipitous decline. But I do wonder if we'll look back at the spring of this year as being the high point of his premiership in terms of popularity. Indeed. And with the autumn coming up where there's plenty more bumps ahead, I think that very much could be the
1: case. And obviously, we should always say that we've written off Boris Johnson so many times before and so many times think this is when he's going to come a cropper. He always finds a way of bouncing back. So I don't think any of us should write that off. Sarah and Robert, thank you. Leveling up is supposed to be the defining mission of the Johnson government. After delivering Brexit, the Tory party is meant to be focused on tackling long-standing regional inequalities and delivering a better deal for all those who voted Tory for the first time in 2019. It all sounds rather grand, except there's just one quibble. No one quite knows what levelling up is, how to achieve it, or what success looks like. Boris Johnson attempted to put some meat on these proposals at a big speech in Coventry this week, but it again remained rather policy-light.
4: We don't want to level down. We don't want to decapitate the tall poppies. We don't think that you can make the poor parts of the country richer by making the rich parts of the country poorer. And you can't hope to stimulate growth around the country by actually constraining companies
1: from developing. Well, Peter Foster, welcome back to the podcast. This speech uh, on Thursday was long-trailed as a big moment for Boris Johnson and the government – moving on from Brexit, and in theory, moving on from the coronavirus pandemic. But I think it's fair to say it was a little bit underwhelming. It was full of typical Johnsonite rhetorical arcs about what levelling up was, and it was not about levelling down parts of the country. But fundamentally, it didn't really announce that much new stuff.
4: No, there were lots of retreads of old policies. But the real problem was, it didn't grasp with any of the sort of central contradictions. So on the one hand, levelling up was a north-south thing you know there was a slight sense that london had done well and they needed to focus on the north but then it was also an inequality thing regardless of geography you know i thought that that what it lacked was a kind of clear sense of any of the resolving any of the tension so there was lots of talk about towns you know uh uh, we, we know that the politics of place is really important but fundamentally if you want to make progress you've got to you know, mirrored European clusters and cities, which is where real productivity and growth grows, you know, and the politics of place is frankly inimical to the economics of driving productivity. So those big structural contradictions, frankly, just remained unresolved. And Jim Picard's great to have you back as always. I think the
1: problem that you could see within this speech, though, is the fact that this is not how Boris Johnson expected his government to go, that he won that big 80-seat majority in December 2019. They got Brexit done, in their own words, a couple of weeks later. And then straight after that, we hit the coronavirus pandemic and the government had to spend about £300 billion it didn't anticipate. But in some ways, the pandemic has actually highlighted and exacerbated these divides across the country in terms of jobs in terms of public services and that's made the challenge even greater. But they've lost a lot of money and have lost a lot of time. And really when you look at this today, you have to think, well hang on a minute. It's it's less than three years till the next election now. Based on that, what's actually going to look that much different in the country by then?
0: Yeah. I mean I think the thing to remember is that most of the spending that's occurred to tackle COVID over the last year is going to be paid for ultimately by borrowing. So of course that creates this massive you know, watch of over two trillion of British debt, which is just waiting there for the moment when interest rates start going up and then that creates a whole fresh fiscal headache. But for now, he can still, because he's paying for it by borrowing, he can still talk about levelling up. And I think if you look at the speech in political terms, it's a speech which is is full of boosterism. If voters were listening to it, then what they will hear is that positivity. They'll hear a sense of possibility that the place they live in might have seen better days, but it could have a brighter future ahead of it. So in, in political terms, it's, it's quite a useful message for Johnson to have. But I think there was this MP called Laura Farris, who I've never heard of before, but she kind of let the cat out of the bank today on the BBC, where she admitted that the phrase levelling up basically means everything to everyone. And she's probably in a dungeon somewhere having the thumb screws put on her by the, the Tory whips for having basically admitted what we already know. And, and the sort of intellectual dishonesty of levelling up it really reminds me of when Michael Gove said that he wanted all pupils to be above average. You know, not everywhere can be levelled up without somewhere else, you know, suffering. Unless you are talking about levelling up in some totally different way, like we're levelling up Britain against France or against Vietnam or against the UK based twenty ten. If in its original incarnation, this was about improving the parts of Britain which didn't have as good job opportunities and life opportunities as places like London that generally do.
1: And I think, Peter, the, the thing that I struggle with this a sort of lot is that the concept behind it, which is, as I said, it tackling inequality, is probably the right one if you look at what Britain went through over the past five years since the Brexit referendum. And people clearly have voted for change in how the country is run and how public services deliver for them. But when you start to break down the different policy areas, it's not really joined up. And I think that was the problem I had with Mr. Johnson's speech today is that the, the rhetoric and the arc is quite. But to take one area, for example, which is devolution, that's really soared. And that was because Downing Street was very bruised by the encounters it had with the greater Manchester mayor, Andy Burnham, during coronavirus, where he was crowned King of the North for his attempts to extract more money from the government when Manchester was sent into lockdown. For me, that showed why metro mayors are a great thing and why we need more of them. But for number 10, for Whitehall, said, oh, well, maybe we don't want to devolve as much. And we've seen that Lord Michael Heseltine, who really is the king of devolution, in the UK has said that he thinks that whole agenda is dead. And to me, it seems you can't level up and give people a better sense of their place until you devolve more power to them.
4: No, indeed. And in fact, one of the problems with the English devolution settlement is that it's incredibly piecemeal. Different mayors in different areas have different powers and actually, that just confuses the public because, as you say, you know, fundamentally, the instincts of the Treasury and the instincts of Whitehall are centralising, whatever Boris Johnson says. And so, you know, to announce, you know, email me about what's the best way to have a county mayor. You know, this the problems facing Great Britain are not going to be fixed by county mayors. It's a bit like you know a football pitch within five miles of every single person. It sort of it all smacks of gimmickry, when what we really need to do is think of of serious policies that are going to allow us to keep up with our neighbours. So you know that he made a big thing about the, the Sunderland investment and in electric cars, but we're falling behind european levels of investment in terms of uh, capacity on gigafactories you know the last 3 years 2016 to 2019 when we were fighting about brexit you know the germans and and the french were subsidizing and piling in on electric car vehicles now there's been one announcement but if you go to the society of motor manufacturers you know we are behind and the trade deal that he signed with europe will make it tough after 2026 for UK uh, electric car makers. You know, the race is on and what we need is real strategic thinking. And you didn't get the feel there was a lot of it here.
1: And then, Jim, the other, of course, part of levelling up is actually just building stuff. Now, this is something that Boris Johnson likes to do. He loves the idea of having bike hire schemes, bridges, airports, railways, roads, all that things, tangible stuff that he can be photographed with and things makes a big difference to people's lives. But again, when you look at that element of levelling up, the government's still humming and harming about HS2. There's still a lot of unhappiness in the Tory party about it. And HS3 is also known as Northern Powerhouse Rail, the idea of better connecting the great cities of the North. That's still stalled. And there's still this same problem again that doesn't seem to be any clarity on, is there money coming from? When's it going to happen? And you can see it feels like a lot of this is just getting bogged down in the kind of sort of typical Whitehall agenda that meant this stuff hasn't happened in the past.
0: Well, I think to be fair to them, they would say that capital spending has continued and will continue despite the pandemic at a reasonably steady trot. But I think it takes us back to this whole idea about can you have levelling up without some areas of the country losing out? So Boris Johnson talked about how we don't want to decapitate the tall poppies. But at the same time, he also said that we want to get away from this idea that your geography is your destiny, which is what's happened in years gone past. And he had some figure, which I'll probably misquote, along the lines of kids on free school meals in London are twice as likely as kids on free school meals in northern England to go to university. So the implication of that is that you want fewer of those kids from London to go to university and more of the northern ones. So this idea that everything can be a zero-sum game and you can improve life chances of of literally everyone. It's, it sort of pretends that there's a world where there isn't a finite number of places at Cambridge or Oxford, and there's not a finite number of judges, and there's not a finite number of MPs. The reality of the world is that all of these things are finite. And I think my sort of broad conceptual problem with it as well is that if you look at successes in the past, and, and there's this interesting Johnson refrain where he talks about there have been 40 different schemes in the past You know, you talk about regional development agencies and this kind of thing. and talked about how a lot of them have not been very successful. When you look at ones that have been runaway successes, such as the London Dockland Development Corporation, which gave us Canary Wharf and all the rest of it. Of course, it was under Margaret Thatcher. Absolutely massive success, but incredibly focused in one place, and Liverpool Docklands as well. And at the moment, the Tories are, are making great strides in Teesside, as we've talked about and written about especially you, said, but, You know, Teesside's got a freeport. it's got the GE wind turbine factory coming in, they've got the Treasury North moving to Darlington. But this idea of Boris Johnson that this is happening everywhere and that all that investment is going to happen in Wrexham and in, you know, Tyneside and it's going to happen in the Don Valley, and it's going to happen in the Humber. And, you know, they've raised expectations so high that there are bound to be loads and loads of people left disappointed in loads of towns in, in the North. But I think the crucial thing is, It's going to take years and years for people to notice or realize if it doesn't transpire. And that's the sort of political genius of this that Labour MPs have said to me. We feel like Boris Johnson has got these people's audience and they are going to give him a chance to deliver. And that could be years and years before they know whether or not he succeeded. Well, Jim, I'm going
1: to take that moment just to obviously make the punt the fact that I have written a book about this that is coming out in September, having spent much of the past year dodging lockdowns and going around the country trying to um, figure out what's going on here. But I guess, Peter, the issue is that point Jim was making that when you're in politics, there are finite resources, finite sums of money, and trying to replicate the Tees Valley model everywhere is really tough because Tees Valley obviously has a lot of brownfield land. It's got a very dynamic man, Ben. So it's got a model that works. But you can't do that in every part of the country. And this is plays into what I think is going to be the big, big battle of the autumn, which is Boris Johnson, versus Rishi Sunak. And we've written about this this week in the FT because clearly Boris Johnson loved to spend and the Chancellor has joked on national TV about taking away the Prime Minister's credit card. But we are going to have to level about the public finances at some point, given how much has been spent on COVID, but also the various day-to-day increases in spending. The Prime Minister has already pledged on top of that. So there's various things to do with social care, the health service, the police service. And really, you have to wonder how this is going to pan out it's pitting this new style of tourism, which is spending to level up versus the old style, which is a smaller dynamic state with lower taxes. No, indeed. And,
4: and if I, you know, Boris gave this analogy, we, should, we shouldn't be goal hanging. We should be, uh, you know, be the playmaker, you know, as if to say, we need to be kind of investing in places that haven't had any investment. Well, number one, I'm not sure that's really a very good smart use of money. Actually, what you do want is agglomeration effects. You do want you don't want to be pouring money into dead end places because they're dead end places. And so you know, and yet the politics of place is what drives this, as you say, by creating this sort of cloud of optimism. It was sort of typical, you know, Barissian tosh in a way. This great cloud of optimism. He talked about East and West Germany. You know, Germany spent two trillion euros in levelling up East and West Germany post-eurification, 80% of that, it's spent on benefits, on on social benefits, you know, what they call social investment. Uh, You know, we are talking about mammoth sums of money uh, at a time when we've just spent $400 on the COVID crisis, uh, and it's really hard to see where the deliveral is going to be. But maybe, you know, Johnson just thinks that, you know, he can keep playing the narrative, keep playing the boosterism, and Relatively speaking, people will feel that they have made some difference, but it's going to be tough, I think. I think it is. And
1: finally, Jim, I guess the question about this is how much does he actually have to deliver for this to, you know, feel like a success? Because Rachel Wolf, who's one of the authors of the uh, 2019 Tory manifesto, she's advocating, I've spoken to her uh, for my book about this, the idea that actually what people want is just a better sense of where they live. So a nicer high street, more shops, and a sense that, Things are not going backwards, and one of the things that the prime minister talked about in his speech today was improving high streets. And it's quite easy to laugh at money being spent, you know, to get chewing gum off pavements or install new hanging baskets. But for people who live in these towns and have seen them going backwards consistently over many decades, even just that little bit sense that things are going better could actually have quite a positive difference. And when it comes to the next general election, which is what I guess Johnson has in mind with all of this, people could say, "Well, actually, things do feel a little bit better." Around here, and particularly if you're on T side, things will feel a lot better around here. And if that's the case, then you reward it by voting conservative.
0: Yeah, and I, I think there are going to be a couple of crucial decisions where we can potentially see levelling up in action. Because remember, they changed the uh, Treasury Green Book, which decides where investment goes to try and tilt investment and spending away from London and the southeast. And there are going to be major projects, for example. You know, It's not hard to see how Crossrail 2, which is proposed as a north-south London line, it would be built ideally around the same time as the northern powerhouse rail link. And the question is which of those is going to get the solid commitment of capital spending for whenever that is, probably the early 2030s. And that's going to really test this idea that you can pour money into the north without taking it away from the south. But I think in political terms, what's absolutely fascinating, as we've discussed before, the way that Boris Johnson has created this kind of ground zero of Johnsonian politics and pretended that he had nothing to do with David Cameron and George Osborne's government from 2010 onwards, even though he is of the same age and generation of Tory politicians and was, of course, mayor of London at the same time. It's almost like Brexit created this new kind of epoch, I suppose, in British political history. And that is so much to his benefit because, you know, If he wasn't delivering happier, better looking shopping centres and trams and bridges within a couple of years, you know, when they've been in power since 2010, you'd have thought that people would be unhappy. But because they're seeing this government as just having started in 2019, I think it does give him quite a few more years before disappointment in some places where he doesn't deliver could set in. Well, I can almost certainly guarantee we will be continuing to talk about
1: this. And I can imagine probably two years time, we'll be back here still asking, what is levelling up? Peter and Jim, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast then, please do subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And if you're feeling a well, whole happier the prospect of Freedom Day this weekend, then you can celebrate it by leaving us a nice review or even just a positive rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon sound engineer was Breen Turner and until next time thank you for listening
2: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.